Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Professor Sergey Levine. Sergey Levine received a BS and MS in computer science from Stanford University in 2009 and a PhD in computer science from Stanford in 2014. He joined the faculty of the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at UC Berkeley in fall 2016. His work focuses on machine learning for decision-making and control, with an emphasis on deep learning and reinforcement learning algorithms. It includes developing algorithms for end-to-end training of deep neural network policies that combine perception and control, scalable algorithms for inverse RL, deep RL algorithms, and more. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Sergey. Thank you for inviting me. And to get going, I always like to start with this kind of template question of how did you get into AI initially? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was um, actually when I was in college, the, the thing that I most wanted to do as a career, uh, which is, I guess, not uncommon at that age, is to make video games. Because um, <laughs> uh, video games are a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I actually. I did a little bit of kind of hobbyist game development uh, myself at the time, so I, I wanted to study computer graphics and uh, and develop video games. And to me, a lot of the appeal for that was uh, you kind of have this experience of essentially creating almost like your own universe, right? You, you craft mm-hmm. everything that uh, that is needed for for an interactive uh, world. But the toughest part of doing that, of course, is creating uh, intelligent agents uh, to populate that world uh, and. Uh, you know, in, in undergrad, a lot of what I, you know, what I did is I studied computer graphics, simulation, that sort of thing. And towards the end of undergrad, I kind of figured out that in order for this stuff to really be interesting and meaningful, the, you know, simulating the, intel- the, the, the intelligent decision-making process was going to be the, the biggest obstacle. Um, so that got me interested in, in looking into those questions. Uh, and I actually uh, started my PhD working on computer graphics, but specifically with a focus on uh, animation of virtual characters. And, uh, you know, back then, this, was, this would have been uh, around 2010, the big challenge in uh, character animation was essentially an artificial intelligence challenge. How do you get uh, coordinated intelligent motion to emerge, uh, you know, typically goal-directed motion if you want a character to do something. Uh, and over the, over the course of that, you know, that, that, that stuff kind of, you end up with, a, you very quickly end up with a problem where to make it really work, to make it really have high fidelity, you were essentially doing exactly the same thing that you would do in robotics, right? Because if you mm-hmm. have physics simulation and coordinated intelligent motion, you're basically controlling some kind of humanoid robot in effect. Um, and then after that, I kind of figured, well, if this stuff has a chance of working in computer graphics, it probably has a chance of working outside of computer graphics too. And that would be a lot more interesting to explore because that's actually like something that's real. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that field of uh, computer animation has seen a lot of research in, in the last decade has been very cool for sure. And I was browsing your papers and was curious kind of to see where you started. And according to Google Scholar, your first paper was in 2009. So I'm curious also how you got into research in general and uh, what you made you want to do a PhD in the first place. Let me uh, think back to that. So, well, okay. So my my very short, honest answer uh, to in regard to what made me want to do a PhD is uh, I did actually at the end of uh, the my third year of undergraduate studies actually get an internship at a video game development company. I tried to apply for internships at those companies for multiple years, but you know these are small companies; they don't really hire a lot of interns. So I finally got sort of my dream internship. Uh, and I really hated it. Like it was just, <laughs> it, it was just like, you know, the, the, the worst parts of working at a software company combined with like a horrible grind and just like really boring stuff. And just, <laughs> so the real honest answer is because I just didn't like the alternatives. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I could say something probably more inspiring about how like, Oh, uh, you know, science is great and so on. And I do believe that I do think science, science is wonderful. I think you have the, the, the possibility of doing something amazing that benefits society. But to be perfectly frank, I didn't 
actually internalize all that until later. So the the actual the, the honest answer is because I didn't like the alternative. Um, well, and, and I hope and hopefully for some of your listeners, you know, this will resonate with them because we all like to pretend as scientists that we do what we do for some grand altruistic reason. But sometimes the truth is that like we do what we do because it's fun, and the other stuff, the other options are not as much fun. And, and maybe yeah. that's okay, right? I think um, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, but for the, the those particular topics, um, well, I started working with Professor Vladimir Colton at um, uh, at Stanford uh, towards my uh, junior and senior year of college, and then I, I actually ended up continuing to do my PhD in, in uh, Vladimir's group. And one of the things that really uh, resonated with me in regard to the research that his group was doing at the time is that, um, you know, in contrast to a lot of the other uh, labs that I, you know, I, I work in a few other labs too, in contrast to some of the other uh, groups, uh, he had a very, I found his vision to be very compelling because he articulated his vision as really building virtual worlds. So not as like, oh, we're going to isolate this one little piece of, you know, figure out how to do this particular rendering problem. But it was really like, you know, what do we need to build uh, to, to essentially like replicate the universe in a computer? Um and, and that really struck a chord with me. So, uh, so that was why I chose to go to that particular area because it was kind of fun to discuss these topics with him and really lay out, you know, what are all the pieces we need to essentially, you know, reproduce the world in a computer. Yeah, that makes sense. It, this actually reminds me, I uh, initially after undergrad went into industry uh, because I wanted to try it out, having done some research and kind of quickly got bored and that's why I applied for a master's at Stanford and then kind of ended up doing a PhD. So I guess uh, I can relate <laughs> to just enjoying research and, and just wanting to do more of it uh, instead of industry. And uh, on the topic of kind of how you got started, interested in uh, computer vision animation, uh, your thesis, I believe, is motor skill learning of local trajectory methods. So I was curious if you could um, kind of describe how you got to that focus and maybe summarize what are sort of the key ideas there. Uh, yeah. So uh, the key idea, which is something that, oddly enough, I think a lot of people today would find very appealing, but that I'm not sure I actually find all that appealing anymore, is that um, if we want to get deep reinforcement learning methods to work. And keep in mind that this was back in like 2013 and 2014 when they didn't really work. Um, the way to do it is to utilize good model-based optimal control techniques to develop, um, uh, you know, essentially procedures that provide training data that could be then utilized by, uh, you know, well-understood and relatively simple supervised uh, deep learning methods. Uh, and this is the, the, the basis of a procedure called guided policy search. And this made an awful lot of sense, uh, especially in 2013, because, you know, essentially, if we, if we look back at how uh, reinforcement learning evolved over time, it's like, you know, the idea of using neural nets with the reinforcement learning, it's, it's a very old idea. You know, it's, in, in some ways, it's, uh, uh, it was actually you know, basically coming out around the same time as neural nets were emerging for supervised learning, right? So Jan LeCun had the digit recognition stuff in the, at the end of the 1980s, uh, and a lot of that was early 90s too. And then stuff like um, Gary DeSaro's uh, uh, T. Uh, Gammon was also like early to mid 90s. So right around that same period, people were figuring out how to use neural nets for, you know, handwritten digits. They were also figuring out, figuring out how to do it for reinforcement learning. Uh, but very quickly after that, it also became apparent that it was really difficult <laughs> to use neural nets for reinforcement learning. And that's why most of the reinforcement learning community all through the uh, you know, early 2000s and so on was mainly focusing on linear representations, tabular representations and things like that. So in supervised learning, kind of the, the, um, the bane of neural nets was that people thought they were like the second best solution to everything that was what, what, what would be taught in a, uh, you know, in uh, prior to 2010 for reinforcement learning, it was not the second best solution. It was actually like a terrible solution for a long time because it was just so difficult uh, to use it. So, um, and in fact, it's still difficult to use. It's just, we figured out much better tricks. So that's why uh, in, in my thesis work, you know, what I really wanted to do was figure out how to get deep reinforcement learning to be practical. 
And since right around that time, there were really good supervised methods emerging where it was going from second best to first best solution. Um, you know, this was the, the approach that I wanted to take. And I did experiment with, you know, other, other possibilities, including direct policy gradient methods and so on. Um, they just didn't seem to work as well at the time. Now, I do think that if, if we sort of look at how those ideas have, um, have evolved over the past decade, um, obviously, you know, end to end deep reinforcement learning methods do work a lot better now than they did then. On the flip side, I actually still think that the idea of supervising reinforcement learning methods with some other source of experience is a very powerful one. And I think that in some ways, the, um, the modern incarnation of that is actually the study of offline reinforcement learning, where basically in offline reinforcement learning, we say, well, if you're just given data, regardless of where that data came from, can you use that uh, to train up uh, the best policy you can? Whereas back then in my thesis work, it was more like, what's a good way to produce data so that you can train up a, a policy with it? But it's, it's really actually a very related problem. Um, so, you know, in my thesis, the focus is much more on the optimal control methods that produce that data. Um, I think these days it's actually a lot more interesting to think about methods that are agnostic to the data source, but still utilize data that's provided to them because it's a more realistic setup in the real world. For sure, yeah. Uh, offline RL is maybe one of the most exciting things and, and most popular things, and we'll get to discussing recent trends. But uh, before that, um, I guess it's kind of interesting. You, you finished out your PhD in 2014 and uh, then went on to focus, as you said, much more on end-to-end -end learning, deep learning for robotics. And 2014 was you know, after DQN and just before DDPG. So was it kind of obvious to you then that this is the direction you wanted to go? And how was it transitioning to using these sort of deep learning techniques instead? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I started working on this stuff, uh, right around 2011 or so. I just, I just didn't get up to work until 2013. So, uh, mm -hmm. I was, you know, the, the first guy, like the guy to policy search work, I was presenting it in summer 2013. Um, so that was actually before the, the Atari paper. Uh, now my, my results didn't involve Atari games. They involved <laughs> little silly walking robots. So, right, uh, right. you know, I was kind of, uh, I think, you know, also I, I was kind of a, an outsider to that community. So I think that also when I was starting out, like not as many people were paying attention to my work and that's, you know, that, that's all right. Um, but uh, I think that, well, okay. So one of the things that struck me when I was trying to get started on this stuff in, in, in 2011, this was back when uh, deep belief networks and restricted Boltzmann machines were sort of all the rage. And uh, at the time, um, probably the work that was closest to what I wanted to do was, uh, being done by, um, you know, some folks out of, um, out of Jeff Hinton's group who were looking at, uh, restricted Boltzmann machines and their kind of recurrent counterpart for modeling, uh, motion capture data. Um, and there's some pretty cool work on that topic. Um, I tried to reproduce that stuff. I really couldn't. I mean, I, I, I managed to get like RBMs and DBMs to work with uh, binary units. I kind of got it to work with Gaussian units, and then I had to go and download Russell Akutinov's code, MATLAB code, which actually worked, and then I realized there was just a huge bag of hacks necessary to make it work. Um, I think we've come, so, we've come some ways since then, but we still have a bag of hacks. It's just that it's the same bag of hacks. That, like Everyone passes around the same bag, so if you inherit the bag from someone else, you sort of don't... Uh, don't quite yeah, keenly feel the pain of how big, how heavy that bag is getting. Um, yeah. uh, and I think that was part of why I think my starting point was to approach the problem as shoehorning supervised learning methods to do, to get policy learning to emerge, because basically I would rather take someone else's bag of hacks than try to construct my own <laughs> and hope that I can kind of, you know, that stuff can sort of evolve independently. And as it gets better and better than any RL method that just utilizes it directly, will get better too. But yeah, it's, um, it was annoying then. I think it's still annoying now. And, uh, maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe the, the truth is that for all of the issues that we have with deep learning being hard to use and, and complicated and so on, you know, it does come down ultimately to good uh, engineering practices like, you know, maybe the 
community know-how is this kind of unavoidable. All we have, all we can do is develop good practices for sharing that know-how and, uh, you know, standardizing it and so on. That's kind of what the community has been doing. So that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's, it's gotten easier to get things to work for sure with documented frameworks that are you know, well-tested and so on, but you still need some of the deep magic, black magic that it's just from experience. Um, and then, yeah, I think it would be fun to just skip forward and look at where we are now and uh, just discuss a few of recent works from your group. And I just picked a couple that I found particularly interesting myself and that I think hopefully the readers or listeners also find cool. So, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts and kind of a description of, of what you like about some of these works, starting off with Disco RL. Distribution conditioned RL for general purpose policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. So this is a, a paper that was done by um, by three students, uh, Sarush, uh, Vichy, and Ashwin. So Vichy and Ashwin are PhD students here at Berkeley. Where Vichy actually just uh, graduated, and then Sarush, he was actually a, a master's student at the time, and he's now a, a PhD student at UT Austin. Um, so uh, the three of them had actually been working, uh, you know. So, on some projects together, on some projects separately, on various topics pertaining to uh, goal-conditioned reinforcement learning. And that paper was in some ways sort of uh, the combination of the work that, that, uh, that these three students had been doing up until that point. So uh, a lot of the, the topics that we had been kind of discussing together in the, in the months leading up to that work had to do with, this, uh, with the following that you can train policies that are conditional on goals, and that's very appealing because you can kind of get a degree of universality out of it. Uh, you know, there's, there's this sort of dream that you can train like one policy that just like does everything. Now, of course, there's a, you know, a whole bunch of caveats to attach to that. Well, it only does everything you know, with respect to the distribution that it was trained on, and so on. But still, it's kind of it's kind of very appealing to think that maybe instead of specifying the task kind of in advance, we learn this sort of universal thing and then specify the task afterwards. Right. That, that's kind of the dream. Um, and a lot of uh, what kind of led up to that work was this discussion about, well, what tasks can goal condition policies do and what tasks can they not do? Right. So uh, and it was kind of fun to uh, get in front of a whiteboard and work out some, you know, think of some counter examples that no goal condition policy could do. Um, for example, you can't, you know, if, if your goals are states, you can't define a task that says, like, reach this destination while avoiding this other one. Right. So there's some things that you can't specify. Um, and you can, you know, if, if you're very mathematically inclined, you could imagine even like formally characterizing the class of tasks that can be done, the class of tasks that can't be done. You can connect it to cool optimal control stuff like boundary value problems. But, uh, you know, we're computer scientists, so we didn't want to do that. We wanted to actually make things work. Uh, so instead of approaching it as a problem of characterizing, we approach it as a problem of like, you know, let's like solve it. <laughs> let's, let's fix the problem. Um, and so, so we got to thinking about, well, what are classes of, what are things you can condition a policy on so that it could do everything, right? Like just goal states are not it. Uh, and we went through a, a bunch of stuff. We iterated through a bunch of stuff. And what we arrived at eventually, uh, which is kind of a, I think a kind of a cute connection is that if you can condition a policy on a distribution over states, uh, then you, you can actually define any task. So there's, there's basically a, a, a relationship where, uh, you can, for any reward function, you can find a distribution of states such that attempting to reach that distribution of states is equivalent to maximizing that reward function. It's actually a fairly simple construction. It's not particularly, um, it's not actually particularly insightful in retrospect. Uh, but once you do that, now it becomes more apparent that uh, all you have to do is just think of parameterizations of distributions. And if you can come up with like, you know, a sufficiently expressive parameterization of distributions, just plug that in as your conditioning variables. And, and you've got that. And that still involves some approximation, of course. So you pick a very restrictive parameterization. You can't do everything. But the thing is, picking parameterizations of distributions is something that we know how to do really well in machine learning. So now we've translated this seemingly mysterious problem of, like, what do I condition my policy to, on to do anything into a problem that lots of people understand, which is how do you parameterize probability distributions? Um, and, and that's basically the idea behind the paper. And, that, and then, of course, there's the hard work of actually getting it to do something useful and um, Mr. Ashwin and Vici came up with a, actually a few different variants. I think in the paper they described conditioning on simple distributions like Gaussians, as well as more complex ones with representation learning and some cool results with like different tasks and IKEA furniture and so on. 
Um, but yeah, the basic idea is this like this question of like, what do you condition on so you can do anything after that? Mm-hmm. Which, uh, and I presume the idea is you, you train on a variety of tasks, a, a yeah. bunch of samples in a distribution and enables you to generalize, which is one yeah, of the well, and that's, that is actually in some ways sort of the, maybe the dirty secret in a lot of this work, but also maybe a good opportunity for future researchers that a lot, a lot of this work on these kind of universal or conditional policies, it either skips over the question of how do you get that distribution or it does something fairly simplistic, like say, well, let's just get like the broadest distribution we can. Let's, let's like find a way to maximize the entropy of that distribution. And I think there's probably much more interesting things uh, that could be done uh, for selecting distributions like that. Um, there's a, a, a little bit of work uh, towards this direction, some of which was actually done by um, two students at Carnegie Mellon that I've collaborated with, uh, Lisa Lee and uh, uh, Ben Eisenbach, who are advised by, um, by Russell Akhudinov, who were looking at uh, kind of uh, a different type of uh, distributional idea, which is distribution matching, where instead of this is just for goal condition stuff, if you want, instead of just saying let's maximize the the entropy of our goals, they, they were thinking about well, can you get it to match some prior distribution? So if you like believe that this is a distribution over interesting stuff, can you essentially get your policy to be competent on everything in that in that region? Um, and that's maybe one way to get started with, with this question of uh, figuring out you know the right space. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, moving on to another recent work that I think was quite exciting and, and kind of generated a lot of discussion. Uh, I was thinking to talk about uh, reinforcement learning as one big sequence modeling problem, which uh, I was certainly pretty excited to see and, and, you know, surprised a little bit. Yeah. So this is a paper um, by um, two students uh, here, uh, Michael Janner and, uh, uh, and Colin Lee. And uh, what Michael and Colin, well, what they set out to do, it, it was actually like a little bit of a kind of one of these concept papers. Like our goal was not necessarily to get something to work really well. It was just to see like, you know, so sometimes it's a valuable exercise in science. If there's a particular way of doing something, you can ask, well, can this be done in a, in a rather different way? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's better or worse. It's just like you know, if you, if you get two data points, you get three data points. You can maybe triangulate a much better solution afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so it's valuable to try to solve things in a way that's pretty different from how they were solved before. So, in in, in that sense, a lot of the decisions in that paper were intentionally made to be. I don't know, I don't know how best to put it, like almost like as obtuse as possible. It's like if some space alien <laughs> came to Earth and didn't just know anything about it, yeah, rethinking yeah, it, and didn't know anything yeah. about how people solve these problems, uh, what would be like. The, 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 one of the stranger ways they could do it. So the concept in that paper is that um, what if you take uh, a reinforcement learning problem, you take trajectories, and you tokenize them in some fairly naive way, and then just shove them through a, a general purpose sequence model. So you know the sequence model of choice these days is a transformer, so the, the paper uses a transform, but it could really be anything. It's, it's just about tokenizing into discrete tokens and then training a large sequence model on um, and so the, the way that Michael and Colin did this is they actually tokenized the, the trajectories very naively, literally per dimension. So, it, so the sequence is not, it's not a sequence of time steps. It's actually a sequence of time steps and dimensions. So the first token is the first dimension of the first time step state and so on and so on and so on. Then you have the actions, then, then you have reward states, actions, et cetera. And, and the sequence model kind of doesn't care. It just like gets this long sequence of tokens. Uh, now, it's a much longer sequence than, than the original one. So you have a H-length sequence. You end up with a H times D-length uh, tokenization, where D is the dimensionality. Um, but the good thing is that, you know, because sequence models have progressed, they're actually decently competent at handling this. Um, and then you just, uh, if you want to actually do control with this, you decode uh, with beam search to get a high reward, high likelihood trajectory. So there's a little change in beam search. Usually when you decode beam search, you just do max likelihood. Here you have to sort of tilt it a little bit so that it favors high rewards. Uh, but it's just a small change in how in, in, in the um, uh, cost function for beam search, and then you just decode the beam search and then execute the corresponding actions. So it's, it's basically like a, a language generation applied to model-based RL. Um, and surprisingly enough, it works, and it's not that it, it's not just that it works. The part that, that was that was most interesting to us is that the model that you get actually ends up being a very good predictive model. So, you know, when people do model-based RL, they often will, uh, you know, set up a model uh, of, uh, you know, P of S prime given SA. 
that's a very logical thing to do because you know you live in a Markovian environment, so it's enough to model this, these one-step transitions. And it's really good because then you have compositionality in time and you can do all these, uh, you can recursively perform rollouts, whereas this thing doesn't do that. It still works really well, and I think that part of why it works really well, especially as a model for making predictions, is that um, it's actually trying to represent the whole distribution, the whole joint distribution over states and, and actions. And that helps it to sort of stay in high in high density regions. Whereas if you have just a conventional action condition model, you can easily feed in some actions a little bit unfamiliar and it will go off in some uh, weird direction. So more so even than the RL results in that paper, the thing that I think is actually the most interesting are the prediction results. And uh, Michael put together a really nice animation of the humanoid uh, rollout, which is uh, on the, the title page on the website that shows this long, I think it's a 100 step rollout uh, for the humanoid. So, you know, those of, those of you listening to this who work on model-based RL might realize that a 100 time step rollout on, on humanoid is actually fairly difficult to do with uh, conventional models. Um, so that, that's pretty cool. Um, I think longer term, you know, uh, my take on this kind of work is that probably the, like, the thing that will actually work ultimately will not be this approach. It'll be some of these ideas incorporated into like all the other stuff we know how to do really well in RL. So I don't like, I would not want somebody to, to misread that paper saying like, let's forget what we're doing and do this instead. But more like, you know, here's a data point of how we've done it before. Here's another data point of a very different way to do it. Uh, now let's, you know, let's see what's good about them and get something that's even better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I recall when I saw this to your uh, point that this is supposed to be strange. One of the uh, precursors that is a bit similar. And yeah, this is kind of paradigm, a little different in terms of just doing a sequence model approach. Uh, there was a paper titled Upside Down RL, which, you know, hints at that sort of strangeness where you kind of flip a problem a bit. Uh, yeah, so that's really cool, and uh, it's kind of interesting. There was another paper that came out right around that time, so I guess transformers and sequence modeling were just in the air, and it made sense to try it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just uh, uh, moving forward, so far we've talked more about sort of RL problems that are evaluated more on um, simulation as is kind of typical, uh, mm -hmm. and, and not very complex manipulation problems either for the most part. Uh, so I know another aspect of your work that is pretty unique is working with real robots and working with kind of large fleets of real robots as you've done at Google. And you have uh, recently some exciting work along that front with uh, MT Opt and uh, Never Stop Learning. So I'm curious if you can go into kind of that whole journey of having fleets of robots and, and where mm -hmm. you kind of progressed to recently. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So, um, so the work that you referred to, uh, that there were there were kind of a few papers that, that came out over the course of the past year. Uh, basically, from the uh, this is from the robotics at Google team, uh, which is kind of the main team at Brain that works on uh, robotics. And you know, there's there's quite a few folks involved in that, and I, I don't think I can enumerate everybody, but kind of the you know the the a lot of the leading efforts there were done by um, Carol Hausman, uh, Dmitry Kalashnikov, Jake Barley, and also for the Never Stop Learning paper, the lead author was uh, uh, Ryan Julian, who was actually a PhD student at the time, but now he's a full time uh, researcher at, uh, on that same team. But there are a lot of other people that have contributed to that. So sort of a large uh, scale kind of, you know, when we discuss it, we kind of almost joke that it's sort of like a CERN style effort. Like, you know, CERN is like <laughs> you build this big, big infrastructure to study uh, uh, complex experiments. So you can think of it as a CERN-like effort for robotics. Although, you know, the nice thing about CERN is that it's also very, very open and uh, uh, academic, whereas at Google, by necessity, we, we are a little bit more proprietary. It would be nice if it was more open and academic. Um, but... Um, you know, that stuff started a, a while back and there's actually kind of a, an interesting origin story that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe your listeners will appreciate with, for a lot of this multi-robot learning. It happened actually almost by accident because when I, you know, when I started at Google in 2015, uh, there, you know, the, the team there that was doing uh, robotics research, uh, it was uh, folks like um, uh, Merle Kalakrishnan and uh, Peter Pastor who were uh, part of the, you know, back when Google acquired all these robotics companies, they kind of came from there, but then they transitioned to more researchy kind of uh, topics. And we started working on, uh, you know, basically like end-to-end -end RL for robotic manipulation tasks. And we needed a, a robotic arm. 
And, you know, I didn't know what's, what was going on. I had just showed up. They, I was just hired. Uh, so uh, Peter and Renal were setting up the, 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 the robot. And I was like, well, it's kind of a weird robot. I've never seen this kind of thing before. Uh, where did you guys get this robot? And we, we discussed it a bunch. And it turns out that there was actually a robot that one of these companies had designed. It was like kind of a custom-built robot. But they didn't want it anymore, basically. Like, it was, <laughs> you know, we're wow. just going to hand this over to research and you guys do it. So then we worked with this for a while. It's a pretty nice robot. Um, and then I asked him, like, well, how many of these things do you guys have? Like, you know, one of them broke and then it was replaced. And then I was like, how many of these? Like, <laughs> and eventually we figured out that there's like 30 of these things. And they're just yeah. sitting around like no one else is using them. Um, so then uh, we got to talking about it and we're like, well, if we've got these all these arms and no one's using them, can we just like put them all in a, in a lab and and actually do kind of like an ImageNet style experiment, right? Uh, you know, um, Ilya Sutskever was was also there at the time, and he kept uh, asking me, like, you know, what's going to be like the ImageNet moment in robotics? So, you know, maybe partly to get Ilya off my back, I was just like, okay, let's just like set up a whole bunch of robots and get like an ImageNet scale thing to happen. Um, and when we when we were thinking about the particular uh, task to do, um, we initially decided to focus on robotic grasping because uh, we thought it was something that was general enough to be useful, but also simple enough that we could readily uh, collect large amounts of data without getting too um, uh, too caught up on like setting up complicated tasks, complicated environments, and so on. Uh, we were also partly inspired by a paper, a really nice paper that had come out uh, around that same time from uh, Laurel Pinto and Abhinav Gupta called uh, "Supersizing Self Supervised." Supersizing self-supervision, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. where they had set up uh, their Baxter robot to do grasping for a while. So we're like, hey, this is cool. This seems manageable. Uh, and we could do it in a pretty general way. Um, so that was that was the first arm farm paper. And, it was, you know, I, I will say it was emission at scale in terms of like the raw numbers. Like, so we, we got we got at least that part of the goal. Um, but one of the things that was a bit unsatisfying, and this is coming back to the um, the more recent work that you mentioned, uh, one of the things that was unsatisfying to us about it is it wasn't quite like there were kind of two things. One is, well, okay, you don't want to do just grasping. And two, what happens when it goes wrong? Like, you know, we can train up this thing, you can deploy it. Uh, and I remember, you know, Peter was telling me he had a demo for some like higher up, you know, very prominent uh, Google executive type. And he was really nervous during the demo because this guy would come and like put weird objects in front of the robot to try to mess it up. Um, so, you know, we were worried about what would happen uh, at test time and we were worried about, you know, can we generalize this to things that are not grasping because we want to do things other than grasping. And th that's what th that was what led to the, the two projects that you mentioned. So um, uh, Ryan's work, uh, the Never Stop Learning paper, was really about kind of exercising this possibility that maybe if you're doing reinforcement learning, the question of what happens at test time is actually very simple. Maybe what happens at test time is just the same exact thing that happens at training time. Just keep training the thing. Uh, and we had actually made this really complicated plan for how we were going to deal with all sorts of distributional shift issues. And we didn't actually do any of that because it actually just worked without it. So in the, in the paper, what Ryan showed is that, well, you make some kind of surgical perturbation to the robot. And within like four hours or so, it basically catches up and it, it re regains its capability. Yeah, if at test time the environment is slightly different, the lighting changes, whatever, yeah. you can just train a little bit more, fine-tune, and then it works, right? Yeah, and he would do all these torturing things that, that I found to be actually rather rather drastic. Like he would take the <laughs> gripper of the robot and attach a metal rod to it so that it was offset by 10 centimeters. Like, you know, imagine if someone surgically altered your hand so that your hand was 10 centimeters off from where it was, uh, right? And so uh, he, he was actually quite cruel to this thing. But uh, yeah, he found that, uh, you know, across the board, he, he could get... Uh, get back that level of performance within four hours, which is which is like pretty nice. Like that's that's a pretty good confirmation that if you just keep running RL, that's actually a pretty decent starting point. I mean, for, you could say four hours is a long time. Maybe you could do faster than that, and I think you probably could. But it's still like a, a really nice empirical validation of that. And then the MTOps stuff—that's addressing that, that 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 deeper thing of like you know what do we do beyond uh, grasping, and how do we actually design a robotic system built on the same foundations of large-scale reinforcement learning, but that can be readily generalized to a wide range of tasks. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that paper is definitely an important step in that direction. There's still a lot of things that are unresolved, you know, things like um, safety, things like resets. Uh, you know, there's other work that we've done that addresses some of those. But I think overall, like that direction, essentially, 
to me, the, the really exciting question that that's posing is how do we go from our current way of thinking about robotic learning, which is basically very, uh, you know, tightly scoped laboratory experiments to something where you can just like stick a robot in like any room of your, of your house, switch it on and come back three days later and it's figured out how to like, you know, do whatever task you want in that room. Um, so the MTL paper is not there by any means yet, but it's kind of a, taking a step in that direction. And it's interesting to contemplate what kind of other steps we need to take to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, this would be very useful because I think uh, people in other subfields of AI, computer vision, NLP may not quite relate to how much of a pain it is to just do infrastructure, you know, babysit for robot. It would be nice if it was easier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and that also makes me want to transition to one last paper uh, that's yeah related to this topic and, and what you were just talking about. You wrote up with again, uh, you know, several other people: uh, Julian Ibars, Giatan, Chelsea Finn, uh, Peter Pastor. Um, you have this write-up that's a bit more of a kind of I don't know, I guess, reflection or or empirical uh, bag of tricks, which is how to train your robot with deep learning, uh, deep reinforcement learning lessons we've learned. So, I think this is still something that's pretty rare in RL, and uh, so I'm curious if you could share sort of the main insights that you were trying to get at in that paper. Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking that. So that paper, you know, it really, it, it was it was Julian's kind of uh, brainchild. He's the one that came up with the idea of writing that paper in the first place. Uh, and um, his, his vision there, uh, which I think, you know, I, I will confess, like, I think my main contribution was to kind of discourage him <laughs> and he, oh. he, plowed, he plowed ahead anyway. And I think he was uh -huh. actually right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I obviously I, like, you know, I, I helped a lot with the writing, but I, I was sort of, I, I have to credit him for having the vision to see why it was important to write a paper like that. Um, it was basically that when we do the, you know, various robotics experiments, including the large scale experiments, and, but not, not only that, like, you know, a lot of what we describe in that paper is smaller scale too. There's kind of a lot of stuff that we figure out in the process that doesn't really end up in academic, in conventional academic publications, because we deem it to either be not important enough or not general enough or something. Um, so as a result, a lot of laboratories end up with this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, community lore internally where they know how to do stuff, but other people don't. So we essentially just wanted to take our best shot at writing a paper that summarizes, you know, obviously we can't communicate all those details, but at least summarize like what those details are. Like, you know, if you were to read our, our serious, our serious, mature, you know, academic publications, the kind that we write as professionals, what are the things that we won't tell you? Basically, What are the things that we won't, <laughs> you won't get because they're deemed uh -huh. not academic enough? What are the details that make it work that you don't mention? To, to exactly. Yeah. So, of course, we try yeah. to make things as reproducible as we can. But nonetheless, like, uh, you know, the, it's not just the, the technical things that are necessary to, like, literally reproduce the code. It's like, well, what are the thought processes that went into that? You know, some of that you're not going to find in academic publications. So that's what we want to essentially summarize in a paper like this. And it doesn't it doesn't describe exactly how to do all those things. But at the very least, we're hoping we could at least say what those things are. Like, you know, if you're going to set up a large scale learning experiment, what's like, you know, the first, second and third thing that's going to cause you like a lot of trouble, basically. Uh, right. Um, so that, that was really the goal. And, and it is nece by necessity because of its nature, a little bit of a laundry list. So it's like all these things. And essentially the way that Julian organizes is, is, is each of us wrote our, our little section about what we thought was important. And then we kind of tried to. Uh, put it together in some way that it would be coherent. Um, and, you know, there's some stuff, discussion there about safety, a lot of discussion about robot autonomy. And robot autonomy, by the way, doesn't just mean that the robot does the task autonomously. It means that insofar as possible, a lot of the learning process is done by the robot rather than by the human, right? Because for anyone who's actually run a robotic learning experiment, you probably know that there's a lot more human learning these days that goes into that than <laughs> robot learning. <laughs> so you kind of have a, a robot babysitter usually. So there's a lot that goes into lowering that, that, that effort burden, and that's a lot of what we discuss. Uh, and then we discuss trade-offs, you know, trade-offs that may not be as obvious to someone more used to uh, reinforcement learning research, because when you're re reinforcement learning research, you think, well, can I get my numbers to be high, and can I get the, can I squish the graph this way along the x-axis? But in robotics, there's other trade-offs. There's, you know, different algorithms are easier to accommodate in terms of safety. It's easier to incorporate demonstrations. It's easier to find rewards, depending on the method. 
Um, so partly our goal was just to surface some of those issues. And even if we couldn't fully explain exactly how to do all these things, partly because we didn't know and partly because, you know, it's, it's very situational, we at least wanted to explain that these issues exist and that these are like factors you should keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, certainly something that is maybe atypical as far as publishing papers, but uh, that, you know, would be definitely something you need in research. So I found well, and, and I will say, like you know, to the uh, to the credit of the academic publishing community, uh, the uh, the paper was very well received. Uh, you know, both obviously by you know publicly, but also by by our reviewers. They were very uh, you know open minded, and, and they actually gave us excellent feedback and generally very positive assessment. And this is another place where I have to admit that you know I, I was a little bit off base because. More or less, all the things I told Julian would be like disasters were all the things the reviewers liked the most. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I, yeah, I, I think it was a, it was actually a really good idea on his part to, to get that put together. Oh, wow! Yeah, sounds like uh, sometimes I get you get a pleasant surprise. Yeah, some, sometimes um, you kind of have to go with your gut and 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 write the paper that you think is that you think is worth writing, even if you don't think it's uh, kind of academically the most uh, uh, the mm -hmm. easiest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and building on that, I guess, uh, I'm curious, have you had any, do you have any stories maybe on, you know, uh, mishaps that have happened with learning with robots Any sort of, uh, yeah, any, any interesting experiences you've had as far as that goes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I will say the, the arm farm stuff, the first arm farm paper that we had at, at Google, uh, that one was, there were, there were a lot of interesting learning experiences we, we had. Um, I mean, partly I think it's because, you know, I guess I can summarize the main concept like this, that if you run enough robots for, it's like kind of the monkeys in, in the typewriter with the typewriters thing. If you run enough robots for enough time, eventually they will do just about any crazy thing you could imagine. Um, so first we very quickly learned which cheap Amazon toys are more robust or less robust because, <laughs> you know, essentially entropy. It is like there's some very thermodynamic element to how this works because entropy accumulates very rapidly. So anything that can be disassembled into its constituent parts and then distributed with a uniform distribution over the over the room will 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 be distributed in that way. Um, so that was so we quickly figured out what worked there. Uh, one of the mishaps we had involved um, a. Uh, you know, letting the robots run over the weekend, which we would usually try to do because they collect a lot of data that way. We came in in the morning on Monday and found that, um, you know, the robots were doing grasping in these bin uh, setups that one of the bins looked like some kind of like some kind of horrible crime had been committed because it was all red <laughs> and, and smeared with this, uh, this kind of red paste and all the objects had, had red on them like someone had been murdered in there or something. It turns <laughs> out that there was a... a Someone had to put a lipstick, uh, just a, a close stick uh. of lipstick into the bin. And late uh, Friday, the robot had actually gotten it open by accident and then spent the rest of the weekend just picking it up and, and you know, dropping it, picking it up, dropping it and smearing the whole thing with this lipstick. Uh, so you have to imagine also not just not just how the objects will behave in their present state, but also how uh, entropy accumulation can alter their state and do stuff to them. Um, yeah, we had a lot of these things. Um, we would also, it was also interesting to see that, uh, you know, towards the, the end of the week, always the, the thickness of objects on the floor of the lab would get thicker and thicker, right? Because they would periodically throw stuff out of the bins by accident and we would accumulate this layer of junk <laughs> on the floor. Um, but I also really liked, liked that. I think that's, it's, it's actually really nice if you, like, I don't know, to me, this is a very crude heuristic, but I think a robotics lab is working properly if the robots are moving a lot. Like if you, if you come into a robot lab and you see more robots moving than humans moving, that's like a good sign that some, something is being done correctly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's actually nice that we were able to run experiments that were long enough and big enough that weird stuff could happen. So it's right. always more fun when weird stuff happens because then you, some, there's something emerging, basically. Yeah, and that's, that's something as, as robotics researchers you get to... I guess get used to is uh, there's a trial and error thing to making sure your whole setup is fine and there is an object selection uh, process <laughs> often that people may not realize of just buying toys and then seeing which ones work uh, which is kind of interesting 
And then, uh, yeah, that's really interesting hearing about specific papers and uh, the particular kind of regermination process that you don't see in the paper. I found it really cool. But uh, zooming out, uh, kind of talking about bigger trends or individual works, as you mentioned, uh, one area that uh, is really exciting right now is offline reinforcement learning, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm excited about. And there's a lot of sort of work moving in that direction. So can you describe why you think that's really promising and then sort of yeah. where we are with that? Yeah. So um, I, I, I generally think about it like this, that a lot of the success of supervised deep learning methods, especially when it comes to their capacity to generalize to complex open world environments, doesn't just come from having a, a big neural net. It also comes from having uh, a large and diverse data set. And the diverse part is actually important. It's not just about it being large. It really is about the amount of coverage you get, right? And um, while I, I'm a big fan of these large-scale robotics experiments where you set up a robot and you run it for a really long time, the diversity of the data matters just as much as the size. So ultimately, if we want robotic learning systems that generalize very broadly in the same way that like a model trained on ImageNet generalizes broadly, we'll need data that provides uh, you know, adequate coverage of the world. And I think there's no avoiding that. Like you, you, need, you need coverage. And I think that for that reason, it's probably going to be largely impractical to do fully online RL experiments where each time you want to train your robot to do something, you have to take it to your house, my house, uh, your neighbor's house. You know, you have to take it to all these different places so that it gets that coverage. Uh, and if we look at how, you know, for example, the computer vision community has approached this problem, they have some really great tools. They pre-train on a big data set like ImageNet and then fine-tune on a more narrow data set in the hopes that this broader pre-training essentially gives them some invariances uh, that, that make it unnecessary to then collect data from every possible setting for, for the downstream task. So that's kind of what, what I think we need to bring to robotic learning. And uh, to get that, we basically need the ability to reuse data because we, can, we can't collect this broad representative data set every time. Uh, ideally, what we would have is we would have a data set just kind of sitting somewhere, a shared data set, maybe something that people contribute to, but mainly just needs to uh, be available, uh, that we would always use to start with. And then for our particular task, we could train it up in some more narrow setting, but by including this very diverse data, it will generalize. And that requires a different class of reinforcement learning methods. It requires reinforcement learning methods that can utilize that prior reusable data. I think they also need to be able to fine tune online, but I think it's, it's okay for this purpose of algorithm development to initially disentangle those and just really figure out how to get RL algorithms that can use previously logged data effectively. So mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the robotics take on the problem. Now, there's also a non-robotics take, which I think is also very important, which is if we're successful at doing this, we could also imagine applying reinforcement learning algorithms to things where it would be insane to imagine using online traditional methods. For instance, what if you want to do reinforcement learning for um, coming up with good policies to prescribe treatment plans to patients? Right? Like you don't want to prescribe random drugs to see if it cures someone's disease. Uh, that would be uh, rather unethical. But you I should say... Real quick on that point, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, online means you your agent interacts with the environment, does random actions typically, and then gets reward. Offline means you collected a bunch of data, and it doesn't interact with the environment at least initially. It just learns from the data and the stored reward that some, at some point some agent got. Yeah, thank you. Uh, right. So the, the, the point is essentially you make RL work the same way as supervised learning in some sense, where you're, you're given data and you just extract the best policy from the data. Except instead of copying it, you actually do better than what you saw in the data. So yeah, in, a, in like a medical treatment setting, this actually kind of makes sense. You could take historical log data of how doctors have treated patients before. And in the same way that a human expert might scrutinize that data and figure out like, oh, these particular drugs seem to work well. These particular drugs didn't work so well. So I'll, I'll do this kind of treatment. In the same way, your offline RL algorithm could scrutinize that data and come up with a better policy. Uh, or you could figure out how to regulate power grids or determine the tax policy of a large nation state, you know, what are these kind of like big uh, sort of uh, operations research style problems where active interaction would be completely impractical. So I think that's actually also really exciting because it just really broadens the field of problems that could be tackled with RL techniques. But, you know, I personally am actually very excited about the robotics potential because that's sort of the problem that I really want to solve. And I think there mm -hmm. it would be basically offline training and then some uh, very clever online fine tuning. Yeah, which is uh, 
we are sort of starting to move there. Offline training is pretty hard because, you know, um, it's hard to evaluate in the first place. And, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of difficulties. And, uh, on that topic of, you said we need a lot of data, a lot of diverse data, I guess one of the tricks of offline RL is where do you get the data? And there's been efforts like RoboNet, uh, you know, inspired by ImageNet, but, um, if you need a ton of data, then you need some exploration policy, and then it's, it's it's hard to get all the data. So, how do you think we can address that challenge? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, so, I think first and foremost, we need to learn to share uh, uh, as roboticists. I think that it's uh, you know typically as roboticists, what we do is we we each have our own laboratory setup, our own robot, our own thingy, and we kind of do our own thing. And I think that the more we develop algorithms, like I I think a a good signpost for whether we're on the right track is if uh, robotics researchers are using data that other labs collected. Like the more that happens, the more I'll feel like we're on the right track. Which right now almost almost right now almost never happens. Yeah, and most of imitation learning, but not really a rel. Yeah, exactly. And if you were to tell like. Uh, uh, a computer vision researcher or an NLP researcher, this they would think that you're doing something horribly wrong, right? So yep. I think that's kind of you know maybe that's like a good a good signpost for us to use as a community. Like the more we're sharing, the more we're we're on the right track. Um, and I, I think that the rest of it is kind of in the de- almost in the details because I, I think if we set set our mindset on like how do we do research in a way that allows us to share data, then we'll kind of arrive at the right protocols because, you know, maybe I want to do a certain kind of task. You want to do a certain kind of task. Uh, and maybe you, you really need like demonstration data. I need some other kind of data, but eventually things will sort of reach some equilibrium where we'll converge on something that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know the answer exactly to how, how, how we collect data, except for this high level bit where if we set our goal to be sharing, we'll probably converge on something decent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. So, yeah, I think uh, that's a great discussion of that really interesting trend. And just to close out, one more question. Uh, I always like to close out with this one of uh, going outside your job, outside of AI. What are some things you enjoy doing in your spare time? What are some hobbies, interests? Well, uh, a lot a lot of that takes a backseat during the pandemic, of course, because uh, mm-hmm. our, our options are a little bit limited. Um, I do really like things that uh, don't involve computers. Like I, I, I like to do outdoors things, uh, things things that kind of get me away from 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 work a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I think that ge- that's generally the good thing. You kind of have to have a you know you have to be able to shift gears sometimes and. Uh, Get, get get your mind out of things. In, in fact, because if you get your mind out of things, you actually get into those things more effectively. So yeah. Uh, so outdoors, hiking, that sort of thing. I think I, that, that I really enjoy that partly as a way to kind of reboot. Um, yeah. Um, besides that, I mean, nothing particularly exciting. I think um, I've been trying to learn uh, how to play the guitar recently. <laughs> Oh, it's a, it's a fun exercise my, uh, in, uh, in projects. In, yeah, yeah. In, in motor control. Um, but I don't think I can say anything about that. That's terribly inspiring because I'm not very good at it at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a process, uh, very Russian hobby to pick up. <laughs> um, alrighty. Well, I think, uh, that's uh, great to know. And, uh, if you're a researcher, you know, get inspired, go outside sometimes, and with that, we'll go ahead and close out. Uh, so thanks again, Sergey, for taking the time to talk with me for this episode. Thank you for inviting me. And once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our social magazine over at gradient.pub. If you enjoyed this interview, please support us by sharing this podcast with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing it on Apple and elsewhere, the usual spiel. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.